The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let us pray. Father, we we come before you in the name of your only Son, your eternal Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sent him to earth to become one of us, to live a life that none of us could ever come close to living, to live a life of sinless obedience to you, Father. To live a life of finding His fulfillment in pleasing you, in submitting Himself to your holy word and will in a way that none of us could ever dream of doing. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did become one of us, that you did take on flesh, a a second nature, that you, you did become truly human and face the temptations that we face on a regular basis. That those temptations were faced in a more serious way because unlike the first temptation, you entered a world that was filled with sin and darkness and a multitude of temptations. Yet you did not give in. You desired to listen to the Father's word, to please the Father, and not to please your flesh, ultimately. Not to, not to please the sinful desires that so many of us regularly do. And you didn't need to do this. You, you chose out of love to come and submit yourself to the Father's plan of salvation, And then you went to that cross on Calvary. And after countless different types of suffering, you hung there and died. The Lord of life. You tasted death. And not just physical death. But you went through the forsakenness of eternal judgment upon your soul. You face the essence of hell itself in the place of whosoever will believe. And so if there are any here this morning who don't yet believe, I plead with you, Jesus. I plead with you, Holy Spirit, that you would take the truth of the the, the eternal word of God and reveal the wonders of the cross and the wonders of the resurrection to all of our minds and our hearts 
perhaps for the first time or for the thousandth time, that it would be fresh and it would be inspiring and invigorating to all of us, that we would seek to love you, to know you more, and to live for you, and to make you known to others. We thank you that you not only suffered and died on that cross and were buried, but three days later, you rose again from the grave. You rose victorious, proving that your sacrifice had been accepted. You rose and you ascended to where you are seated now, as the psalmist has made clear in what we just heard. And so as we look back into the Word of God, I, I simply ask that you would help me to, to stay faithful to what is true and to speak forth uh, wonderful things about your Word and about yourself that, that would help us to continue in, continue in worship and continue to, to love you for what you did there on the cross and what you did in your resurrection and what you are even doing now from the right hand of the Father. Thank you for this church. Thank you for many of us who have benefited from generations of faithfulness. And so many other churches throughout these islands that can say the same. Thank you for the revelation of your word in our homes for many of us. Forgive us for not responding as we should to that revelation. And we ask that from this point forward that you would keep us in a posture of repentance, that you would keep our attitudes and our minds um, humble towards you and receptive towards whatever you say to us through your word. And so I ask again at this time that you would speak to each of us exactly where we need to be spoken to. I help the same truth to be applied to our hearts in however many ways you know that it needs to be applied. And may we leave this place clothed all the more in the righteousness and the power and the authority and the grace and the love that is in Christ Jesus. For we ask it in His name, for His honor, and for our good. Amen. As I mentioned, we, on Good Friday, we looked at a, a passage of Scripture from Isaiah 53. And I just wanted to start out by reading the beginning of that final song. It actually begins in Isaiah 52. It's the fourth of what are known as the servant songs. Isaiah was uh, prophesying there that... Because God's people had failed for so long to be what they were called to be. To be the kind of servant as an entire nation that they were called to be. That God would send a servant. And eventually through prophecies like this one in Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13 all the way to the end of chapter 53. The people of God would start to understand that it was actually a single person. In fact, God himself, who had to come down and be the servant of God. 
And in this last servant song, we see at the, the heart of it, and in most of it really, that the servant had to suffer on behalf of his people. But as Jesus was going to the cross, I think there are truths at the beginning and end of this song that gave him courage as he faced what he would have to go through on that old rugged cross. And I'm just going to read Isaiah 52, 13 before we look back into Psalm 110. And here are the words of that verse. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. You see the the threefold tenses of victory there. So that God wants his people to know and his servant to know that whatever he was about to go through and whatever we have to go through, this is what our entire life as believers in Jesus Christ is really clothed in. This kind of victory. And so the suffering servant who was crushed for our iniquities is the same servant who will prosper, who will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And if you remember the responsive reading from Psalm 24, it was a little bit over a year ago that I actually preached on that psalm. And it was originally talking about when David had recaptured the Ark of the Covenant and was entering in in triumphant victory back into the city. And those words come out of it, uh, lift up the gates, open up the gates so that the king of glory might come in. But David, when he wrote those words, was not thinking about himself. There was something greater in his mind that he couldn't fully understand. And it was not just the resurrection of Christ that the Spirit of Christ in him was prophesying about. But 40 days after the resurrection of Christ, it was actually the ascension and the entrance back into glory from where Christ had come that those words are pointing our minds to. See, when you, when you trust in Jesus Christ, all that He is and all that He does and is doing is what you become united to by faith. And so we see the first verse here of Psalm 110. The Lord, notice it says L-O-R-D, all caps, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And these words here, again, are used in battle. When a victory has been won, many of the kings back in the day of David and the time when this was written by David, what they would do after they had won the war, won the battle, was that they would take the, the king of the conquered people as a form of glorying in their victory 
and they would actually put their head down and stand on their neck. I don't know if any of you children have read war books, but this was to show the complete victory that had been won. And so God is showing us right here a picture of just how perfect the work of Christ is. Just how victorious and sufficient the work of Christ is. You see on the cross, Jesus had said the words, It is finished. Tetelestai, paid in full. The debt is fully paid. But no doubt, after giving up his spirit into your hands, I commit my spirit and hanging his head down. Just like there are people today who think like this, there would have been countless people thinking, what is finished? Whatever he said, I know for sure that he is finished. But you know the words that he uttered were not, I am finished. It is finished. He had come to accomplish an eternal work of redemption. And you see, the words in Psalm 110 verse 1 actually take us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. So let's go back to page number 1. If you're using a pew Bible, this is an easy number to find. Go to page number 1. And then turn over one more page. And you'll see page number 3, after 2. And in Genesis chapter 3, what has taken place is that man and woman, having been made in, in perfect, sinless image of God, have actually used their truly free will at that time to trust in the word of Satan, to listen to the words of the deceiver who indwelt a serpent of some kind, and to listen to his words and try to become more than they were meant to be. And because of that, they became corrupted. Their natures from birth, as David says in Psalm 51, from conception in my mother's womb when I was conceived, I was conceived in sin. Because we're all offspring of these two people, Adam and Eve. This is our greatest problem. Remember the name Jesus is given to Jesus and he says, the angel says to Joseph, you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not from the challenges of life, not from a lack of wealth, go down the list, but from their sins. And so here's a promise. This is what you could called the, the first gospel proclamation, the first good news that was ever preached, was preached by God himself in Genesis chapter 3, verses 15, in the context of judgment against the people sinning against him. He says this, first of all, to the serpent. In verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman... And between your offspring, not notice it doesn't say offsprings, plural, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
So when we read these words here in Psalm 110, until I make your enemies your footstool, this is the picture of the work being accomplished that was prophesied about by God himself in the Garden of Eden thousands of years before. The one has now come to undo the curse as the the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, uh, says. He rules the world in truth and grace and makes the nations know. And there's another, um, another verse that says, He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You see, while we will not be away or or, or removed from the curses of sin in this current life that we're living in, the promise of what Christ has accomplished is that the very work of Satan, which was started in the beginning, and think about how powerful it was, one temptation to one person, ultimately, two people, but one temptation, one time, giving in to that temptation and look at where we are today. Never underestimate the power of temptation, children and adults. Never underestimate the power of temptation. And so Christ has come to overcome this temptation. That is why he was first tempted by Satan. You remember when we started going through the gospel of of Matthew in chapter 4 we see that after the baptism after God declaring the father declaring this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased he immediately is sent into the wilderness the spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and all that is happening for that whole time is Jesus is being tempted by Satan and there's always this dual emphasis in the Bible that we as God's people need to understand Satan is the one who tempts, but God allows him to tempt. Think of Job. Because while he's tempting, God is testing. God tempts no one. But he tests us, even sometimes allowing direct temptation from Satan. So Christ has come to to overcome this temptation and having achieved a, a righteousness by never sinning in a single thought or word or deed, He places himself on Calvary. He walks like a lamb to the slaughter. And he lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down for my sheep. And he says, I will lose none of the ones the Father has given to me. So that whosoever believes in him will never have to fear death. Death is the ultimate sting of our sin. Death both reminds us of the fact that death comes from sin and of the fact that we cannot overcome our ultimate problem. But praise God, it reminds us that there is also one who has come to overcome this problem. And he uttered those words, it is finished, to show that he had completed this work And there's a verse I I quoted last week from Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that shows that God was in the midst of all that was happening. He wasn't standing off to the side while all the injustice and oppression was being done. He was right there. 
And it's Romans 4.25 which says, He was delivered up for our trespasses. Delivered up by God. And He was raised for our justification. Raised that we would be declared righteous. We being we who trust in Him. And so before I go any further, I just have to ask this question for us to think about. This is the question you must always ask when you're sitting in a service, whether it's Sunday or whatever day. Any, any service like this when the scriptures are being taught, do I believe? Am I a believer? Am I a Christian? I want to help us think about that question and at least one other question a little bit more. Because again, the benefits of all, and we're just scraping the surface. There's no way you could talk about this, even in ten lifetimes, and do justice to what Jesus has done. However, I do want to emphasize that we really need to ask questions like that, because no one receives any of the benefits of the work of Christ outside of this change of mind which the Bible calls repentance. It's a turning away from self-trust and a turning to trust in God alone. It's a turning away from a love for sin and having seen what Jesus has done, a turning to Him. It's an embracing of all that He is and all that He has done as our only hope of forgiveness and life beyond the grave. So when you see these words like we and us and our, always remember this when you read throughout the whole scripture, God speaks to his people in a type of family and covenantal way. And the heart of who those people are is this one simple word, faith. Believers, faith, belief, trust, a confident hope. So again, it was God who delivered Christ over and raised Him for our justification. And that word there, justification, simply means declaring righteous. And both those who believe are declared righteous, but also the words of Christ are proven true when He's raised for our justification. It means that we can have full confidence that our sins were paid in full on the cross, and that the righteousness of God is now ours by faith. Not that we are righteous, but that we're no longer seen as just being in our sins. But if we're trusting in Christ, we're now seen as being in His righteousness. Is that not good news? But that wouldn't have been accomplished if He wasn't risen, if He wasn't raised. And that's what the, the Apostle Paul is getting at in that verse. He was raised for our justification. When the Lord says to, when it says, the Lord says to my Lord here, in Psalm 110, verse 1, it's a picture of the Father saying to the Son, sit down. Well done, my ultimate good and faithful servant. When the priests would finish their work of service, when the kings would finish their victories, the work was done, and a simple way to acknowledge that was that they would sit down. You can't properly work when you're seated. Oh, I suppose now we can, right? Many of us do most of our work from 
a sitting position. But this picture here is showing that the work of salvation has been accomplished. But notice there's an ongoing aspect of this work too that has to be further applied. Notice how verse 1 continues. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we see that the father here is doing something for his son. Remember that his son has been humiliated. He's been lied upon. He's been spit upon. He's been crushed. Yes, by the father in his judgment, but also by people who had no right to treat him this way. But now you see that the one who is crushed, and remember what we read last week, if you look back at Isaiah 52 verse 14, it says, He was so marred beyond recognition that we could not see his humanity. It was worse than any movie could ever depict. This one who had been so crushed and marred beyond recognition has been raised again and glorified. And before he was ascending back to the Father, his body had been perfected. No longer did he have that appearance. God saw it fit to keep the nail prints in his hand for an important reason. But his body, his, his, his semblance, as the verse says, his resemblance was different now. There was a type of glorification that had happened when God raised him from the dead. And I want us to see how important this resurrection is. First of all, the resurrection is, is, not just bod- is not just spiritual, but it's bodily. A lot of false teachings going out there that he was either not truly dead or that he wasn't raised in, in spiritual form in some way. He was raised bodily and they just moved his body. Or that he was only raised in spiritual form. No, he was raised in the same way that he died. But there was this glorification that was taking place in his resurrection. This is important for us because we, when we think about something like death, we begin to wonder, so when I die, what happens? I mean, what really happens? And there's this thing called the intermittent or the, um, the intermittent state, right? The, the, the state in between receiving a glorified body and when you die before Christ returns to make all things new, to make a new heaven and earth. And I just want to give a word of comfort to any of you who might be struggling with this idea of death. If we trust in Christ, we don't have to fear death and we don't have to be worried about all the little mysterious intricacies of how it works. Because when our bodies go into the ground, the time between that and our souls going to be with the Lord, which is what happens. Souls don't need to sleep. And they don't. That time between our body going into the ground, our, our body taking its last breath, and our soul going to be with the Lord, and Jesus coming back to make a new heaven and earth, which includes glorified bodies, will feel like perhaps a second. There's, there's no... Time does not work in the same way in the realm beyond this one. And there's not much more that I can really say about that. But the beauty of it is this. When Jesus was raised from the dead, 
He was raised for our justification. The glory of God Himself depends upon His promises, which include that those who look to Jesus Christ in faith will be raised like Him. Amen. That's something to go to sleep with that night. As Peter says in the beginning of his epistle, we have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Christ. And so Christ, while he has completed this work, he's applying it to his people. And here's the first way how he's applying it. Notice what he says there in verse 2. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Yes, Satan has a grip on this world. Yes, there are spiritual forces that are impacting governmental systems and ideologies that are at work. Many that we will have to face that we never once did at work in this country. Godless, evil, unethical, immoral mindsets. But notice what is happening in the midst of that. This King, this Lord, this Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, is ruling in the midst of His enemies. We also read Psalm 23 as our responsive reading. Remember what the, the heart of Psalm 23 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You see, peace, contentment, fulfillment, these things don't come from the absence of problems, do they? They come with the presence of God in our problems. That is the only thing we have promised in this life. And by the way, there's a lot of people who will teach you that you can have enough faith and say enough special words to speak things out of Existence. Well, clearly that didn't work with COVID. Many of them were blowing COVID away. Don't waste time listening to people who teach foolishness like that. But how does this rule take place? So I want to submit to you that, that Jesus, in His resurrection, is accomplishing an already accomplished mission. That might sound a bit confusing. But when Jesus ascended back to the Father's right, right hand, He had made a promise, a number of promises. If you remember in the upper room in John 14, uh, Jesus said these words to His disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled, because in My Father's house there are many rooms, and He, he promises them that they will be where He is at some point. They can't go yet, especially not as He's going. But He also said that He was going to send someone when He ascended. He said, I will send, me and my Father are going to send a comforter, a helper. The word there is paraclete. And it's literally like, not parakeet, by the way, paraclete, right? That's the Greek root word. And it's talking about someone that comes alongside like a counselor. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. So again, church, we don't just like history when we sing holy, 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 uh, merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We, we don't just like theology or doctrine or attaching ourselves to church history. 
we are acknowledging in that statement that the God who created the world, who recreates a people in salvation, accomplishes each of these works by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. That is the foundation of true Christianity, of true salvation. And I want to let you hear this clearly. If you denounce the deity of the Son, the deity of the Spirit, if you denounce the Trinity, you are denouncing salvation. Now you can never fully understand this glorious mystery. But to see it coming out of the pages of Scripture and reject it, because I would say in pride, we can't write it down like a mathematical equation on a piece of paper. No, that is a rejection of the faith. Once for all handed down to the saints. And so Jesus had to leave. I mentioned this last week. We would not be any more faithful to Jesus by him simply being here physically in our presence. I think the evidence of that is what we've been reading throughout the Gospel of Matthew, church. You think of how, how faithful that even those few who were trying to be faithful to him were. Having him right there did not accomplish great faithfulness. Think about the moments that led up to the cross. One by one, gradually, the, dis- the disciples walked away and became quiet. No one spoke up on his behalf. Peter denied him three times as he was told that he would do. But that same Peter, after he receives this promised comforter, counselor, the Holy Spirit, when you read the book of Acts, in the first few chapters alone, that same Peter who was so scared of death because of associating himself with Christ, that he denied him, turns around and preaches sermon after sermon, and he accuses the people who are listening to him of being guilty of condemning the Son of God. And he tells them that you've got to change your mind about how you're thinking about this Jesus. Now you need to repent and believe in him and submit to him as your Lord. And he's picking up on these kind of words and ideas that are coming directly out of Psalm 110. In fact, Isaiah 53, right close behind Psalm 110, these are two of the almost the most quoted Old Testament passages in all of the New Testament. Because people started to understand something as they trusted in Christ. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Jesus cannot be, Jesus will not be your Savior if you are not submitting to Him as Lord. You can't separate Him into a two-part package. To trust in Jesus as Savior is to at the same time say, I will now submit myself to your Lordship. You will tell me how I should live as a single person, as a young child, how I should respond to my parents, as a husband, how I should love my wife, as a wife, how I should love my husband, who I should and shouldn't date, if I should take this job or not. That one can be a little bit more tricky. But there are certain jobs that I would say you should definitely not take as a Christian. That's for another sermon. Um, But notice what he says. He's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. And so I want to encourage you to think about this carefully. The first gift of the Holy Spirit is something that was long prophesied about throughout the Old Testament and it's called the New Covenant. It's, it's a new heart. 
It's a, it's a heart of stone made into a heart of flesh. It's a, it's a new birth. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3.3, 3, You must be born again. You must be born again. He doesn't say, you must figure out the right program to take part in. You must figure out how to fulfill all the various services. You must X, Y, Z. He says, you need to be born again. You need to have a spiritual transformation in your DNA, your spiritual DNA. We need to be made new. And because of the resurrection, we can be born again and dwelt by the Holy Spirit and have eyes to see what we were blind to see on our own and be united to all these eternal promises and blessings and the victory that we see in these verses. You see, I've mentioned it a few times before, but in this world, in this human race that we have, that we're part of, it doesn't matter how we want to dress ourselves up. There's only two categories that you fall into this morning. One of these two categories. Ready? You're either in the category of those who are in Christ, which means you have repented of your sins. You're trusting in Him alone for, for salvation. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. You are a new creation in Him. You're part of a new creation because of your faith in Him. You are in Christ. Which means you're in the world, but not of it. Here's the other camp. You are still as you were born from your birth, from your conception. You are still in Adam, which is equal to being in sin. And you will face God. All of us will face God after death and stand before Him as those who are either in Christ by grace through faith in Him or those who are still in our sin. I want you to think about that. Where do you stand? Where do you sit this morning? And again, those who are in Christ, we're, we're commanded to be what we are, which is this, in the world, but not of the world. And I, maybe I should push this one a little bit further. In K-Man, but not of K-Man. Church, please hear me clearly this morning. And those tuning in. We are to be in K-Man, but not predominantly marked by being of K-Man, but of Christ. And there is a great spiritual divide there. God never made a covenant with the Cayman Islands. He founded it upon the seas. Is talking about the whole world. The only covenant relationship with God that exists is if you have been born again. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ. The only way that we are going to remain faithful as churches is to be clear on this. There is a direct distinction between being part of any earthly nation and being part of the new nation, part of the new creation, which is in Christ Jesus. So I ask you again to think about this for yourselves. Am I in Christ? Or am I still in my sin? Because God is pleading with you in a sense to turn to Christ. Every time the word comes to you, these are the questions that the Spirit is pressing upon our hearts, upon our consciences. Are you in Christ? Are you in the building? Are you just in the building? Are you just in the pew? Do you have a lot of the truth of the word 
resonating in your minds. Maybe we can even recite it. Nicodemus could have. He could have recited entire books probably. They were so devoted to knowing the words of Scripture. But he was blind, Jesus said. You must be born again. And this is how Jesus is, is seeing. Notice the wording there in verse 2. The Father is promising that the Son will have his, his rule stretch. He, he says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter. That, that was the way that a king would rule. They would often hold a scepter. And they would point it and, and make certain dictates. And the Father is guaranteeing. That his son will win this victory. This spiritual warfare that's been taking place since the beginning. In the garden of Eden. When he made that promise. That he will crush the serpent's head. So this is the glory of our salvation. And in the resurrection. And not just the resurrection. But the ascension. That Jesus is ruling. And how does he do that? He rules through the spirit. Who's given to his people. As a guarantee. And the guarantee and the inheritance that we have because of that spirit. Is because of the son's death. The will that is given is because of Jesus' death. And God would have to put himself to shame. If he did not keep his word in all these various ways. See, the resurrection impacts everything. Jesus made these declarations three times. The Son of Man will be handed over, will go up to Jerusalem, will be handed over, will be flogged, will be crucified, and then on the third day be raised. He repeated that over and over. The reason that uh, in Hebrew, very often the Hebrew language, they would repeat things three times was just to make a point, to make emphasis. Uh, For example, the only attribute of God that is repeated three times in the Bible is holy, holy, holy to teach us that God is holy. He's set apart. He's also perfectly morally pure in every way. And therefore, he he defines what is pure, what is right. And so Jesus said this three times that, that he would have to be crushed. But through this one being crushed, we now have a, a head who's ruling and is crushing the head of the serpent. You could say one person at a time. See, the Spirit in us, the, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, He accomplishes this rule of Christ through the Word. Perhaps you could think of it this way. This is like the scepter of the Holy Spirit. And that begs other questions like, how is it ruling in my life? Am I paying attention to it on a daily basis? Not a weekly basis, but on a daily basis. Am I trying to submit to the rule of this one who was crushed for my iniquities? But his rule is victorious and his rule will accomplish all of God's purposes for the glorification of his son and amazingly the glorification in a lesser way of us this is the grace of God not only does he rule by his spirit through the word in his church which is how his kingdom is being expanded 
But we have victory in Christ. We have a promise that if we would be faithful and as the church open our mouths and simply share the gospel, even if we don't see people turn to Christ, somehow, either because they turn and believe and are therefore saved or they continue to reject and will be further judged, God is going to be glorified. And that is a good message for us. Because it tells us that our faithfulness is not about what we accomplish, but by staying true to God and His Word and what He accomplishes through that. That's why we sing songs like, In the name of Jesus, we have the victory. So we see here, church, we see here that the crushed one is crushing this serpent and he's ruling by the Spirit now through the Word, extending his kingdom. And so I, I just want to end by reading a passage of Scripture as we think about this. If you want to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, I'm going to close by reading this passage of Scripture. Hebrews 13, and in particular, verses 20 through 21. If you're using the, the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 854. But while I prepare to read that, just let your eyes run on the verses above it, maybe a few verses up. read from a few verses up and as we prepare to close with verses 20 through 21. I want to make this as clear as I can. The kingdom of God is extending as we remain faithful to His Word. And it extends through the church. Now the church is made up of these individual believers. And the universal church or the global church you could say is, is expressed through local churches like this one. And so the, the church has a, a certain structure that the Bible makes clear for us. And we want to do our best to understand how that is supposed to work. Because it is as we stay faithful to that, that he's ruling in our midst. And that through us, he is continuing to, to rule in the midst of his enemies. That's Satan and all who are opposed to this gospel. And we haven't faced the kind of opposition that many of our brothers and sisters around the world have. So it's very important for us to think carefully about this. Part of the way that we as Christians are faithful Christians is by being faithful to churches like this one. God never intended your Christian faith to be lived out through Facebook. Praise God, those of you who are sick, those of you who are unable, truly unable to come. Nice to have you with us. Those of you who could but choose not to very often. You need to really think about where your allegiance lies. God intends that every Christian would gather together as his flock, as his sheep, as his church. 
and function according to how he's laid it out in his word. And he has given us, not a blueprint, but some good examples to follow. And as we collectively share this gospel and submit our lives to what he lays out in his word, we show the world that this Jesus we proclaim and this gospel we proclaim not just on Good Friday or Easter Sunday, but every week, every day. We show the reality, the power, the authority, the rule of this Christ. We do what Christ himself promised and, and, and commanded his disciples to do. In Acts 1 where he says, you will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem and all the way to the ends of the world until I return. And I, I want us to think about these things and to spend time today as the day goes on praising God for the fact that he has glorified his son. His son is at his right hand. He's vindicated his work, you could say. And praying to God, asking him to help us be faithful to the ruling of Christ in these islands. It is a huge privilege that God chooses to rule through anyone. It's also a huge responsibility. But the weight does not rest on us. It's resting on the finished work of His Son. So we can go forth with confident hope. So I want to close with these words from the end of Hebrews, verse 20 through 21. Hebrews 13, verse 20 through 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we again we ask your help.